Hey there, I'm Robbie Carman from MixingLife.com, and welcome to another edition of our free podcast series featuring profiles of some of the world's most interesting, unique, and top colorists. Along with my Mixing Light partners, Patrick Inhofer and Dan Moran, we'll be interviewing colorists who work in all genres, with different experience levels, and all with unique insights into color grading. This podcast series is all about the person, the colorist, and understanding what drives them, how experiences on projects have informed their style, and what advice they give to those who are new to grading. We'll be releasing episodes in the Colorist Profile podcast series once or twice a month, and you'll be able to find the podcast on our blog at mixinglight.com. In this Colorist Profile episode, we're super excited to have writer, director, technical author, colorist, and master of nearly everything grading-related, Alexis Van Herkman. If you've been around the world of color grading for the past 10 or 12 years, you've probably heard of Alexis. Based in St. Paul, Minnesota, Alexis has spent over 20 years in production and post, not only as a director and colorist, but documenting and teaching some of the world's most popular and powerful tools, including Final Cut Pro, Shake, Color, and now DaVinci Resolve. I've had the pleasure of working directly with Alexis, and I've seen his great work on some series he's helped my company with. Now, not one to be confined to the suite, Alexis also writes and directs his own films, including the feature of Four Weeks and Four Hours, and a new sci-fi short called The Place Where You Live. So, without further delay, Alexis, great to have you. How are you? I'm good, Robbie. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for uh, for coming on. I know a lot of people are interested in hearing from you. And uh, as I said, this whole series is more kind of getting into sort of the feel of the colors, what motivates you, kind of how you think in the suite. So as we get started, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your background? How did you get into grading? But how did you also get into sort of the idea of writing and directing as well? Um, well, writing and directing was really kind of the source. And to be honest, I mean, I'm just going to be a total hack and say it's all because of Blade Runner. But of course, that's what everybody says. Um, you know, Blade Runner is everyone's favorite film. But way, way back in high school, uh, I originally wanted to be a comic book artist. Um, I liked drawing and I was really into comics and I was really into that method of visual storytelling. Mm-hmm. But somewhere along the line, uh, it got into my head. Really, I have to blame a friend of mine, Andrew Georgettis who was studying film at the time at a local community college, uh, I would go over to visit him and he'd be shooting some film on Super 8 and he'd recruit me to help him out. And I think that was the first time it entered my head that filmmaking was something people could do. Gotcha. Right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't just something that, you know, happened in this big corporate (laughs) world that I couldn't imagine. Like, here's someone I knew with a camera, making movies. And I kind of got hooked. And once I realized that this is something you could learn, I kind of started making that my focus. I started getting into animation. Mm -hmm. I was really into Japanese animation at the time. And long story short, I uh, went to college and got a film major. Okay, so how how did you move from, you know, sort of making films, which obviously you still do now, how did you get into, from there, to sort of making images look nice on screen and, and color grading? You know, my my experience in the uh, the college I went to, UC Santa Cruz, um, which at the time had a very small film department. It wasn't actually a film major. It was a theater arts major. Okay. The film emphasis was how small it was. But it was great because everybody did everything. It was really kind of an indie filmmaking workshop more than it was 
you know, this big, okay, you're going to study cinematography and that's all you're going to do for us. Everybody pitched in, but you know, different people tended to gravitate towards, uh, different specialties. Like they discovered things they liked doing. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I realized is that my background in computers in high school, uh, really gave me a leg up understanding how to get the stupid tape to <laughs> sync via time code to right. the stupid synchronizer, right? I was one of the only people who could figure all this shit out. So uh, people started asking me to help out with their audio. And, you know, I discovered that I had a, an aptitude and an interest in post-production. So when I left college with my shiny degree that guaranteed me two years of unpaid internships. <laughs> I, uh, I divided my time. My first two internships, one was at a, uh, an audio post facility and oh, their wow. claim to fame was they did a lot of the MTV liquid audio oh, yeah, animation. Sure. Yeah, sure. Um, and I actually got to pitch in with finding sound effects and doing, you know, super, you know, entry level scut work for that sort of stuff. Um, and then I also did a production internship at a production company in San Francisco. So I was kind of from the very beginning balancing doing a little bit of post with keeping going in production. Gotcha. And uh, basically it was a horse race to who would pay me first. <laughs> <laughs> and the truth is PAs. Got Don't make a lot of money, right? <laughs> very poorly, even then. And when a local facility I was doing some work on for my own project uh, kind of noticed me and said, "Hey, you're pretty good with the digital editing. You know, could we uh, could we hire you as a freelancer?" And I'm like, "Yeah, how yeah. much?" And yeah. Like, well, twenty five an hour. Holy shit, twenty five an hour. <laughs> you're rich, right? Yeah. All right. Yeah. I mean, out of out of college back in '92, that was good money. Yeah, a princely sum. Yep. Um, so yeah, ironically, I didn't even end up continuing to work in audio, even though that's what I really thought I wanted to do. The, the fact that I, you know, knew how to do video and this was at the advent of nonlinear editing right. starting to become something that was accepted, but I kind of jumped onto that train and ended up getting involved with video editing as an offline editor. Um, and Trying to make the long story short, basically San Francisco was a heavily corporate market at that time. Okay. So everybody wanted me to be doing After Effects mm. stuff, you know, motion graphics. Yep. Uh, make the interview more interesting by flying a bunch of stuff all over the place, right? <laughs> right. So I started getting into After Effects, discovered I loved doing that. So I kind of shifted to my focus to broadcast design. That led to starting to do visual effects at a very low independent level for a bunch of experimental filmmakers I was working with at the time. That kind of segued into starting to tweak colors. And as, as I've always joked, once you, once you learn a little bit about color correction, you can't unsee the problems. So um, let me switch gears a little bit here. You do a lot of different things, obviously. You write, you direct, you do technical writing, you speak. So you do a lot of different things. Let's just hypothetically say you're at a party and you're meeting somebody for the very first time. And they ask you what you do for a living. What, how do you answer that question? <laughs> <laughs> I have a really hard time with that. Um, 
I, you know, really, I kind of, someone asked me about my business card. Here's a good answer. Mm -hmm. Someone asked me about my business card and, you know, kind of every year when I print new cards, I reorder the words, you know, writer, director, colorist. Right. Pretty much based on how much money I made doing each that the previous year. <laughs> gotcha. That's a good one. You know, so if I'm doing a lot of color correction in a given year, then that word goes first. If I'm doing more writing, I put that word first. Mm -hmm. So, you know, truth in advertising, right? Yep. And that's kind of how I, I try to approach that discussion. So, so do you ever have the experience when you tell people, again, that are not in our industry and post-production or production in general, when you tell them I'm a colorist, do people just kind of look at you and like, oh, really? You, you do hair? Like, does anybody ever that sort of... That is exactly <laughs> what they say. What salon do you work at? <laughs> right. So, you know, and of course I have long hair at the moment. So right. I guess I kind of look like you look the part, right? Like, so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, so let me ask you this then. So like so, to somebody that's new, how would you describe, and I know, again, I know you do lots of other things direct and, and write and stuff, but let's just take it on the color side of things. Mm -hmm. How do you describe what a colorist is to somebody who doesn't know what a colorist is? The description that seems to work for most people is I, I, I tell them that I adjust the color and contrast of every shot in a movie to look the way the DP wants it to. Okay, gotcha. That's and they get they get they pick up. They on that pretty, pretty much well. get that. Gotcha. Yeah. And then they go, "Holy shit!" There's someone who actually does that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so you know. Speaking of which, um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of the people that we've interviewed for this podcast, um, we some are self-taught, some are, you know, hey, I just I came from the camera world and got into color correction. For you, did you have any uh, any formal training or apprenticeships specifically with color, or is it one of those things where all the other things you were doing, as you mentioned before, you know, the visual effects work and the after effects and compositing and staying on top of uh, production stuff did that kind of just bleed into all, all you know doing color or did you have some more formal kind of training about color correction and grading well i i had a really unique opportunity um when i started segueing into color i was actually working at apple at the time mm -hmm. and you know as i mentioned throughout the 90s i was freelancing in san francisco 1999, I took a job at Apple and kind of fell into the project of writing the Final Cut Pro manual. Mm -hmm. But I was still freelancing on the side because I always kind of figured that Apple was going to be a temporary job. I, you know, once a freelancer, always a freelancer. Course, you just assume sure. you're going to be looking for work next year. Sure. Um, and when Final Cut Pro 3 came about, uh, they added the three-way color correction tool set and video scopes um, to the NLE. And, you know, Avid had kind of just done that themselves. Mm -hmm. But obviously Final Cut Pro had a lot more reach. And so for a lot of people, myself included, this was the first time we had seen kind of Da Vinci-style adjustment tools. Right. And it's, you know, not necessarily commonly known, but the Final Cut Pro team was very interested in trying to replicate at the desktop level the Da Vinci style of doing things, Gotcha. funnily enough. Um, so basically, I was thrown into the deep end of the pool on that project. They're like, hey, guess what, Alexis? You're going to write a section on color correction. And <laughs> I had done, you know, tons of compositing at that point. Um, you know, I, I, I was fully in my after effects phase at that time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I knew all about color balance and I knew about 
you know, adjustments and levels tools. And I had the basics of color manipulation. Um, but looking at the three way, it's like, well, what the hell do I do with these? Sure. Um, but what was great about that experience was that not only was I able to work directly with the engineers who were developing those features and any question I had, I could go to the engineering team and find out why they wrote the code that way. But I was also, um, given access to the San Francisco colorists that were consulting on the project okay. in secret. And I actually got the opportunity to sit down with a couple of colorists in their suite for hours and interview them fully about what they did and why they did what they did. And I still have those mini cassettes from those first interviews and I keep wanting to transcribe them to see, cause you know, at the time I only really fully was able to understand about half of what they were talking about. Um, but you know, for me, the process of writing, it's almost a more selfish task because for me, it's about learning and investigating more about a topic. I was able to talk to people on the creative side of the endeavor, mm -hmm. have access to the engineers to describe the underpinnings of the technology. And that led to the color correction section that was in the Final Cut 3 documentation, which a lot of people really liked. And, you know, again, once, once you learn to see something, you can never unsee that thing. So from that point on, all of the, uh, all of the editorial clients who are still coming to me, uh, I would say, Hey, you mind if I tweak the color? Cause yep. now I'm seeing you could really use it. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. And over the next two years, people, you know, people would move out of the Bay area, but while they weren't coming back to me for editorial, they were coming back to me to, you know, could you just tweak those colors? And I was like, are you sure you want me to do it? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I kind of almost against my will started slipping down that slope of, of being a colorist, not, not even intending to. Gotcha. So, you know, one of the questions that we get a lot on Mixing Light from people that are new to color, they might be editors transitioning to doing more color. They might be, uh, you know, people, filmmakers, young filmmakers that are really interested in color. They always ask a couple questions that are very similar. Like they ask, you know, hey, what are the technical skills a colorist must have? What are the sort of the personality traits that a colorist might have? In your mind, what what makes up a colorist, like a good colorist? Is it is it, you know, broad knowledge of every camera format out there? Is it knowledge? of you know art and painting and photography if you were to design the perfect colorist like what would that be what would they need to have to be the quote-unquote perfect colorist well i think really the most fundamental skill and i think in some ways this is the hardest thing to learn um is being able to see and i say the word see with the scare quotes right because what I'm really talking about is the ability to evaluate an image visually, you know, to look at an image and see, all right, where's the darkest part of the image? Where's the lightest part of the image? Where are the planes of shadow versus the planes of highlight? Mm -hmm. What kind of transition from shadow to highlight is there in the midtones? 
Is there anything that's, you know, a highlight that shouldn't be? Is there anything in shadow that I want to pull out? Is there anything interesting in the background or is it distracting? You know, what's the range of color contrast in the image? Mm -hmm. Is there a particular hue that is distracting the eye or is there a lack of variety in the hues that I need to somehow fix by teasing a little color out. Sure. Really at the, at the, at the bottom of it all, it's about being able to see the image and you know, this is outside of scopes and this is outside of anything else. If you can't see what's in front of you, you're not going to know well, yeah, where no, to start. I, I hear you, but let me ask you quite a related question because a lot of folks that you know are new to color correction, they, they're sort of, you know, you're guilty of this, I'm guilty of this, every educator who teaches color is guilty of this, right? Like, use your scopes, use your scopes, use your scopes. Right. And, and one of the things that I find is that people get so technically caught up with, you know, what skin tone is supposed to look like or what, you know, proper contrast is or whatever. Do you find that, you know, when you're talking about scene, that it's sort of, it's a balance act that has to be learned between using your eyes and evaluating the image and then using some of the technical tools that we have to evaluate the image? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I've, I've seen lots of debates online between experienced colorists and, you know, and people who've come up learning different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, my, my feeling has always been, and I, I, you know, anyone who's heard me speak is going to go, oh shit, he's going to say it again. You know, you really need to keep one eye on the image and the other eye on your scopes. Yep. Because as, as much as I can wax poetically about the importance of learning to see, and that is critical, um, the job is really constructed of two halves. On one half, there is the artist. On the other half, you have to be aware of the technical limitations of the medium. So you have to be a bit of a video engineer. You have to understand, you know, how much of the signal you're allowed to occupy. You have to understand what happens when parts of the signal start to, you know, bump up against those levels. So you need to understand the signal. And, you know, that's one of the things the scopes provides guidance with is, okay, how much, how much headroom and footroom do I have to push things? Um, on the other hand, I'm also a big fan of breaking down a more creative use of the scopes. And by creative, what I refer to is, you know, learning how to use the scopes to help you see creative things you might like to do. Kind of where you want to go with it, right? Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, you know, you shouldn't, you should never be ruled by the scopes and assuming and this is always my assumption that you have spent the time and the money to have an appropriate display that you trust. If you ever see an intellectual discrepancy between what you see on the, on the, the display and what you see in the scopes, go with the display. Because if the display doesn't look good, I don't care what the scopes are telling you, you know, the image is paramount. It's, it's, all about creating an attractive image. So, going riffing on that a little bit more, you know, I, I talk, we've talked to a lot of people here on this podcast, and then people who are members of Mixing Light about sort of the role of a colorist in the sort of the story making process, right? That's obviously something that you're really big on um, because you you take it from all angles. You write you write the movies, you shoot the movies, you color the movies. In your opinion, in that suite, working with a client or on a film, it doesn't even have to be a film. It could be a corporate piece, even or a commercial. 
What's really the role of a colorist in the, the broader sense of the whole production, in your opinion? Well, that's a tricky one because it, I think it really varies with the client. Um, I have had clients that come in and they want to use me like a marionette, right? They know exactly what they want to do, or they think they know exactly what they want to do. And they just talk me through it and I do what they say and they get what they get. And then I have other clients who come to me and they have no idea. Right. Right. I don't, they want you to be their muse, right? Yeah. Whatever. I, I, I think it, I mean, I don't know how many times have you heard this? I think it looks pretty good. What do you think? You know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure it really needs anything, but yeah. what do you think? And then yeah. you make your first adjustment and they're like, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, so I think, I think when it works best for me, just from, from my personal experience, and I understand everyone's going to, going to feel differently, but for me, I really these days only want to work in supervised sessions. Yeah. Because I like sitting with the client and I am happy to sit with them all week. Hmm. Like I'm not one who wants to chase the client away because I'm looking to be more efficient. I want it to be a collaboration between me and the director and hopefully the DP will be there too. And, you know, hopefully the director and the DP get along. Otherwise, I only want one of them. <laughs> well, you need, um, you, need, you need a decision maker in the suite for oh, sure. I, you know, I'm sure you've had exactly the same thing. The director comes in. He's like, I really fucking hate that DP. And <laughs> oh, we need to change this. And it's right. like, okay. Yep. Um, I mean, you know, I've only experienced that once or twice, thankfully. But uh, it's, uh, it's a collaboration in my view, ideally. Um, but you know, obviously there are all other kinds of ways of working. So related to this though, and I'm curious how you as a colorist think about this because I, you know, everybody thinks about it a little differently. I, you know, when I'm in the suite with clients and the DPs there or the producer or the director, whoever it is, how much of your job is actual aesthetic and making the images on screen look the best that they can versus simply the skill of client management and people management, right? I find that that's one of the most challenging things for young colorists to get is sort of how to manage a session and how to manage all the personalities and egos in the room. Can you talk a little bit about if you, if you found that over the years, the same thing is it's, it's challenging to do and it's all, you know, part of the job of being a colorist. It's vital. Yeah, it's vital. But you know, the thing is, and this is, this is where my experiences are a little bit different. Cause on the one hand, you know, yes, I've been, largely self-taught as a colorist. Although again, not really. I've had lots of people around me, you know, who have been very generous with their time and their knowledge over the years, um, as I pursue my investigations. Uh, but I came up through the system, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. In terms of post, I, I did my time as an intern at an audio post facility working with the lead sound engineer and the assistant sound engineer, um, in an assisting role for supervised sessions. And Jay Shilliday was the lead engineer. Um, fantastic guy, great engineer. And really he taught me half of everything I know about working with clients and client service. Hmm. Uh, it was a great internship because, and I say this to anyone out there who's offering an internship. Yeah. He let me sit in the room. Hmm. I mean, you know, I had to kind of prove I wasn't a jackass. But you weren't, you weren't just running, going to get coffee. You were sitting there observing I was, well, what's going I on. I was running to go get <laughs> coffee, but then he's like, you know, sit in on this one. Gotcha. Yeah. And so there I was, 
And, you know, I got to observe how he and the clients worked together. And every once in a while, he'd turn to me and he'd say, so Alexis, you know, what do you think about this mix? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> it could maybe use a little more bass. He's like, yes, absolutely. You're very right. And here's why. I mean, he really, even though I was a, a an intern peon, he brought me into the session and made me a real part of the process in a way that fully engaged me so I could see how people worked together. Yeah. And that was huge. Everybody ideally needs that. Client service does not come naturally. You know, everyone who's in their 20s and starting in this field thinks they're God's gift and they have new talents that the world has never seen. And that may even be true, but it's not about being the most talented person in the room. It's about that collaborative relationship and being able to build trust with the client so that they will accept your ideas. Because if the client doesn't trust you, they're not going to listen to you. Yep. And that's not going to be a good session. So let me, let me, uh, related to this, and you kind of got my, my interest peaked a little bit about this internship you had. Um, in your mind, because you do so much education, right? You're writing user manuals. You're doing online training products. You're writing books. How, do, how does that education work uh, complement or sort of work with the stuff that you do in the suite? Do, are, is there some sort of correlation between the two in your mind? Does one help the other? Um, I mean, obviously on the sort of the, the cachet level, you're a colorist, so it helps you write the books and that kind of stuff. But from a purely technical level, does, you know, projects that you have and problems that you have with clients and color correcting their images, does that help you be a better educator and vice versa, being a good educator, help you as a colorist? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, for me, the two reinforce one another. And in in fact, if I wasn't continuing to work as a colorist on projects year over year, I would, I would feel ill suited to tell other colorists what they ought to be doing. Right. I kind of feel that the, the, the fact that I do this work lends me credibility as an author that I would not otherwise have. Um, and that's important to me. I don't want to be talking nonsense. I want to be providing practical information that actually is helpful. And, but at vice versa, I also feel very strongly that one of the things that's truly advanced my career has been the ability and it's, you know, it's rare because I'm working for formal publishers, but having the ability to be paid to take some time off to focus on researching what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say that it's so easy when you're successful, right? And you have a lot of clients and they all want a lot of work. You don't have a lot of time to just sit back and say, you know, I wonder if there's a better way of doing this one grade that I do. No, you yeah. do you do what you've learned to do. You do the things that clients have come to expect Absolutely. of you. Absolutely. And you become, you know, you're that guy who does this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's really hard to to tell your wife, right, go home at night and say, you know what, I'm not going to snuggle with you. I'm going to go research uh, cross-processing looks. Right. She loves that. I do that yeah. all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody does that. No. You, you, you go with what you know, and it, yeah. it's awfully tempting to, you know, to, to 
take time off. Do you find yourself being inspired by other people's work, whether it be a film that you go watch or a show that you watch on TV? Are there bits? I mean, obviously, you're not going to copycat somebody wholesale, but are there bits that you try to incorporate from films and shows that you see into your own grading work? Um, well, yeah, that's interesting because the, I mean, honestly, what really happens, I mean, tell me that this hasn't happened to you. A client mm-hmm. comes in, oh, I saw this movie. I want you to make this project look like this movie. Sure. And you're like, really? This, this is a documentary about, you know, right, sandworms and want, you're talking the, about traffic. <laughs> I want the teal and orange look, please, on this. Uh, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's totally inappropriate. And you're like, really? Um, so, I mean, when it, when it comes to mimicking looks, I think that's something clients want a lot. And so you, you have to cultivate the ability, again, learn how to see, learn how to look at someone else's grade and kind of see, okay, I can see they did, you know, they twisted the yellow in the highlights a little bit and they did this in the shadows and all right, I can, I think I can see how to get there. Um, in terms of me personally, I think what I, what I take away when I watch a film and the grade gets my attention um, which by the way, I should point out, I don't always necessarily think that's a benefit. Um, but when a grade gets my attention, usually what I walk away with, if I, you know, if it's something that impresses me is not necessarily the overall grade, but some particular character of the grade that I haven't noticed before or that had never occurred to me. Gotcha. So a couple of actual grading questions for you. Um, you know, a lot of members on Mixing Light uh, ask this all the time, like, but heck, how do you get started with a grade? I mean, there's a, I know there's, a, you know, there's a lot of ways to skin a cat when it comes to, you know, a project. But do you kind of start at the beginning and work in a linear fashion? Do you look at key scenes or problematic scenes and work your way out from there? How do you, how do you start a project in terms of how you approach it from from the grade? Well, a lot of it depends on the budget. Um, and basically how much time the client has to sit with me. If the client's got all week and they're interested in the process and they want to, you know, be engaged, then I typically start at the beginning and work my way through to the end. Now, you know, I will have scrubbed through the movie to get a kind of general sense yeah, of, course. of what's, what's coming. But by and large, I, I'm perfectly happy starting at the beginning and working my way through to the end. If the client doesn't have a lot of time, then, you know, we'll pick key shots from each scene, set looks for that, and then I'll go back and revisit uh, on my own, unsupervised. Gotcha. In terms of starting with a scene, uh, you know, basically I try to find a shot that I think is most representative of that scene. And secondarily... Uh, a shot that has average exposure for the scene. So, you know, if if the scene is generally well lit, but there's one dark shot, starting with the dark shot isn't necessarily going to be representative. On the other hand, if I do a grade in the rest of the scene that that dark shot won't accommodate, that's not helpful either. So you kind of have to know what's coming. Pick something that's really representative and then set your look based on that is 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 how I work. 
Gotcha. So are there are there corrections or grades that you make on kind of every project? And I guess kind of related, would you say that there is a sort of a look or style that is kind of the, the Alexis Van Herkman look? Uh, or, or do you take a much more, you know, each project is kind of its own thing and I don't have, you know, go-to kind of looks and feels that I, I use on every shot or every project? I have actually worked really hard to not have an Alexis Van Herkman look um, because – Again, my feeling is that grading should reflect the visuals and the narrative of the project at hand. And, you know, my best case scenario is being able to create an individual vibe for that project that is going to play off the work of the DP, that's going to suit the narrative needs of the director, and, you know, result in a grade that is of high quality and invisibly fits into the overall narrative. So when the audience is sitting there watching the film, they're not noticing my grade. What they're noticing is that the work is a, you know, terrific unified whole. Part of the story, right? Yeah. Um, so that's, that's me. Now, that said, I kind of wish I did more music videos <laughs> because it is nice to have an opportunity to go ape shit, right? Because working, working primarily in, in narrative and documentary as I do, uh, you know, you, you find ways of getting your licks in, right? Because mm -hmm. you do want to be a little creative. Sure. Um, but you have, to, you have to do it in such a subtle way. And I think there's a lot of artistry to that. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of subtle work. And, you know, when I notice subtle work when i have a moment in the watching of a film and i'm like oh i see what he did to the to the middle shadows mm -hmm. that's brilliant those are the little bits that i kind of live for seeing and those are the the maneuvers that i try to incorporate into my own work just being able to slip those little things in um without making it visually insane and unbearable you know, this is going to be a loaded question, but I'm going to ask it anyway because I've asked it of everybody we've interviewed so far. Um, in your opinion, what's the future of grading? Um, what do you, where do you think we're going to be technically and aesthetically in 10 years? Uh, so first on the technical side, do you think that sooner or later grading is just going to be – we're going to be, go out of business? You know, colorists are just – the cameras are going to be so good that everything's just perfect out of the camera. Um, and then aesthetically, um, where do you think the boundaries are of what we're doing now with looks and how we handle images? Uh, well, in terms of will cameras ever be so perfect that we're not necessary, mm -hmm. um, I think the answer is pretty clearly no. Okay. Um, and, and I say that because film was essentially perfect, right? And that always needed to be adjusted. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, at, at the end of the day, you're, you're always talking about two things. The, the cinematographer fighting time. Mm -hmm. right? There's never enough time to put that one last flag up, right? To get rid of that shadow or, or highlight. There's never enough time to put up that one extra instrument. It's, you're always fighting the schedule and there are little compromises that need to be ideally adjusted after the fact. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, camera technology, depending on your philosophy of production, is increasingly not about capturing the final image. It's about capturing raw material that can be turned into a better image. Hmm. You know, hence all of the log encoded shooting. So 
you know, as long as that continues to, you know, grow as standard practice, mm -hmm. then color correction is essential. Yeah. Because that is effectively shooting a negative, which then has to be developed. Developed, right. Sure. You know, so, you know, we're, we are now the Kodak machines at the Walgreens. And, and do you, right? and, <laughs> that's totally true. And do, and do you think aesthetically that like, you know, I've always felt that we, go, the grading world kind of goes in trends, right? We mirror, you know, what's kind of going on in fashion and photography and, you know, hey, for this two year period, three year period, it's this. And then we move on to the next thing. Absolutely. Do you, do you, do you think that's going to kind of continue or do you think eventually, um, is it, or in other words, is it possible for somebody to break through with something totally? totally new aesthetically in the world of grading. Do you think that's yes. possible? Someone, okay. Someone's always going to break through something with something totally new. And then all the other clients in the world are going to want all the other colorists to do that. <laughs> and then sure. you're going to have two years of that new thing until someone's like, you know what, this has now become the norm and I need to, I need something that's even newer. newer. Right. I think one trend that I've seen from the research I've done and the, the long long-term veteran colorists I've spoken with is that grading applications always come out with new tools and that new tool enables something that people hadn't been able to do easily before. Mm -hmm. And then you have this year where everyone's using the new tool, right? Cause it's awesome. And then Everyone's like, okay, we've seen that. What else you got? Well, right. hey, here's a new version of grading software with another new tool that lets right. you do something else. <laughs> right, sure. And, you know, I think that was very true in the earlier days of analog work, um, you know, when there were far fewer tools. I mean, anyone who complains about the feature set of their top five grading application right uh, now yeah, it's ridiculous i mean it's like needs it's, to really find something else to complain about right i mean because I mean, you and i both started when we had you know it was like uh you know pedestal and setup and like you know maybe a chroma knob and that was about it you know yeah i know okay <laughs> here's here's your color correction it's called a tbc right exactly, hooray exactly exactly well hey thanks so much alexis so this has been really great stuff i know um uh, members of Mixing Light and uh, those who visit the Mixing Light blog are going to really find this informative. Uh, before we wrap up, um, tell us where we can find out a little bit more about you. I know, obviously, you have a lot of books out there that I'm sure people can find on Amazon and places like that. Um, but you also run a blog, yeah? I do. I do. So you can go to alexisvanherkman.com, which I assume you will spell out on your website. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, people can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Herkman. Thanks, Alexis. And don't forget that our Colorist Profile series is an ongoing podcast that's available on the MixingLight.com blog. In future episodes, we'll be talking to colorists from around the world, with focuses on different genres and all with unique insights into the world of grading. So be sure to stay tuned for those. And if you're not a member of MixingLight.com, be sure to check out our membership plans, including a free 24-hour test drive of the site. From MixingLight.com, I'm Robbie Carmen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>